Welcome to My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 408. This program is dedicated to the merit of Baruch ben Yomen ben Menuchelena and Miriam Baschaya Sar Altes, Yukusil ben Leah Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todris and Miriam ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altes. Being that we're coming straight from Gimel Tammuz yesterday, Shabbos, and its effects, its impact, its significance continues to uh, uh, communicate to us, if you want to call it haunt us, but in one way or another, anyone that gives us some thought, 28 years since the Rebbe is physically not being on this earth. So questions continue to come in, uh, which makes total sense. I want to begin with that, since we're still in in that spirit, so to speak. So though I spoke about Gimel Thomas last year and the years before and also last week, however, it uh, continues to merit discussion and merit, most importantly, the lesson to us. Now, someone asked me over Shabbos, how would you identify this day? Some people call it a day of sorrow, a day of longing, a day of disappointment, a day of darkness, a day of challenges, a day of testing. I would say, and call it a day of accountability. Because at the end of the day, the bottom line is our accountability. The things we don't understand, the things that are beyond us, the questions, the concealment and challenge, they're all correct. And I'm not denying any of that, not that the, the, any of that relevance. However, when the most important thing we were taught and always been taught, what are you going to do? Our accountability. Because... That's what we have in our power to do, to turn to Hashem, to turn to God, and turn to the Rebbe and say, here's what I'm doing, everything I possibly can do to bring Mashiach, to bring the Gu'ula, which is all about my Seinu Vavadeseinu, our work in Zman HaGolos, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya, that every mitzvah and every good deed and every act and every choice we make is a building block toward bringing the Gu'ula, which of course will reunite us with the Rebbe, we reunite us with all our loved ones. That's what's in our power. So to me, it's a day of accountability. And that accountability is not just on Yimel Thomas. It's every day of the year. Everything else is not focusing on, your, on what you're supposed to be doing. It's focusing on your feelings and focusing on your longings, which are all good, especially if they inspire you. But if they don't bring to accountability and an element of motivating, then where's it all going? And that's the fundamental principle of Torah in general, and Chassidus specifically, that even Yeridus, Tzedek, Chaliya, every descent is in order to, uh, to grow and climb. Every descent is for an ascent. Yisun Er Menacheshach, light coming out of darkness. Challenges are meant to be a catalyst for motivating us to grow. And that's the spirit of Gimel Tammuz, as it stands today. There are a few questions I'd like to speak about that people have written to me, uh, written to this forum, I should say. And here's a good opportunity at chsidasupply.com. You can submit any question. Nothing is taboo. Nothing is off limits. The only challenge is that I have more questions, that, more questions than I can cover. So things are a little backed up. But I, I will do everything possible to, to address any question that comes in this forum, chsidasupply.com. So here we go. This Shabbos was the 28th Gimel Tammuz. 
I miss the Rebbe so much. I miss how he would light up the room with his charisma as he walked into 770. I miss his amazing dvarteris. I miss his sagely advice. I miss the Rebbe swinging his arms in the air, encouraging us to sing louder with more kavana. I miss Fabringens. I miss waving to the Rebbe as his gray caddy pulled away. I miss Lagbaimer parades. I miss being able to give the Rebbe nachas by telling him good news. I miss how he cared not only for all Jews, but for all people in the world. I miss his sense of humor. I miss hearing the kids in back of 770 run inside going shh, and a sea of black cats parting and opening a pass so the Rebbe could walk through to his place in front of the shul. I miss seeing the expression of pure joy on the Rebbe's face during our coffers as on Simchus Teda. I miss having a daily physical connection with the Rebbe. I think the Rebbe once said that anyone, even someone far away, who has never met the Rebbe in person can have a physical connection with the Rebbe by learning the Torah he taught. If Rabbi Jacobson can expound on this idea and how, and how it is applicable after Gimel Tammuz during a Sunday night podcast, it would be appreciated. Thank you. So this echoes the sentiment of so many people, so many chassidim, so many people all over the world who express similar feelings. And they're all accurate. But I'm glad that you concluded not just how much you miss, but how do we maintain and perpetuate this connection and maybe even make it grow. So what it brings to mind is a story that I think I've shared that I heard when I was in Yeshiva in 770, that there was a young man, I think he originated from Toronto, who came to the Rebbe. Um, he was from a, from a Veltische Yeshiva, and he came to the Rebbe and he brought the Rebbe a book of a manuscript, which was, I believe, was the Ksaviat Kedish of the Tzemach Tzedek. If not, maybe the Friedrich Rebbe even. I don't remember 100% sure. So he was told that by after Mincha, when the Rebbe goes back to his room, he should stay in Gan Eden and he would give the Rebbe the book, the Bichl, as it's called. He gave the Rebbe the Bichl, and the Rebbe was, of course, more than elated. The Rebbe by him, Bichl Chsidis, especially a manuscript. Yet now I remember, he said, the Rebbe said, Dr. Xaviat von Schwer is the manuscript of my father-in-law. So in general, these books by the Rebbe were like lives. Pidyan Shfuim, the Rebbe called it. Redeeming hostages. Because a sefer is a non-nafshik sovis yehovis, especially an actual manuscript, an original manuscript. This is the spirit, the soul of the writer, the author, like the Ebrister instilled himself, his spirit, his soul, nefesh, in Torah, so too with Sadikim Dem Lebedim. Sadikim are similar. They instill their very essence in the Torah that they write. So the Rebbe said to this young man, he said, now that you've brought me something that's so dear to me and precious to me, I'd like to give you something equally precious. What would you like? So he was an American or Canadian young boy, and you know, what does a boy want? He says, I want to connect with you. If you can give me a picture of yourself, that's autographed. You know, today in the modern world, uh, you have pictures of sports, uh, other people that are your heroes. And if it's autographed, it's extra special. So the Rebbe smiled and said to him, why do you want that? He says, because that way I have some connection. The Rebbe said, you want a connection with me? Go across the street and you can take any of the Sfarim, any of the books that I've taught that are published there as a gift. And that's how you connect with me. By learning what I learned, by doing what I do which essentially is what this writer just wrote, and that's exactly the point. Of course, it's easier and far 
less work necessary when, you, when we saw the Rebbe walk into a room and light up the entire room and ignite the electricity within the souls of all the people that were there. Obviously, that's a koyach mamayla, it's the power of a Moshe Rabbeinu of a generation, a leader to do that. But as I said at the outset, accountability. Today, it's more difficult because you don't have those giluyim, you don't have those revelations. But that doesn't mean we don't have the strength. We just have to dig deeper and it has to come from within our initiative. Because the Rebbe's teira and the Rebbe's directives live on. That Nothing has changed. Not in 28 years, not in 2800 years. Teira is nitzchi. And the Rebbe imbued himself, invested himself, instilled himself, is the right word, within his teda, within his directives, and that lives on. So we have total connection to that in the fullest sense of the word. As I said, is it harder? Yes, it's harder, but it's also more premiistic. It's more internal. A picture is a reminder. A signature is a reminder. Even then the Rebbe was saying, not my picture, not my image, not my, but what I do, what I learn what we learn together. That's the way we connect. Now, of course, again, I'm not denying the pain or denying the loss or denying the sadness, but what does it drive us to? It has to drive us to a deeper connection to the MS of Teira, to the MS of Chassidus, to the MS of the Rabbeim, who are servants of God in bringing godliness to this world and, and helping ignite our connection and, and uh, to, the, to God and to our unique and indispensable mission in this world. Another person writes, It seems very often when someone would tell the Rebbe about an accomplishment they had, the Rebbe would not be satisfied and would push them to accomplish more. When someone told the Rebbe they put film on 25 people in a week, the Rebbe would respond, Next week put film on 50 people. Once a group of fundraisers told the Rebbe, that they raised a million dollars for a project, and the Rebbe smiled and said, do you think I'll be satisfied with one million dollars? The men replied, if you would be satisfied, we would worry. And the Rebbe smiled and said, don't worry. I feel the, th- the theme of these examples are important to share as we honor the Rebbe's life and teachings on Gimel Tammuz, and try to figure out what is, most import- what is the Rebbe's most important message, what his most important message is, or to us, so we can follow those teachings. Rabbi Jacobson, would you agree that one of the central themes in the Rebbe's teachings were about not resting on one's laurels? That we should never, that we should never be satisfied with our accomplishments, and we should always make an effort to do more and more, especially in the realm of adding acts of goodness and kindness in the world. Yes, of course, I would absolutely agree with that. And that also focuses on the theme we're discussing, which is action accountability, what we're going to do. That's exactly right. Some people misunderstand. They feel the Rebbe, why it's not just showing appreciation what we've accomplished. God forbid. Rebbe always showed appreciation. But his drive was always to bring out the best, to bring out more. So the appreciation always came, that expectation, that demand, let's go further. And the Rebbe was a living example. He, never satisfied, he was never satisfied with his own accomplishments, always adding more and increasing more. So that's an excellent application to Gimel Thomas today. The, the increasing, and in some areas, in many areas, you see that growing. And I'm a witness, I've been around, I was around 28 years ago, I was around 38 years ago and more, and I see that growth. And it's amazing to me, because people who are, many of them who are initiating never saw the Rebbe physically. 
It's a testimony to the living truth of something that is nitzchi, eternal, because of the teres emes within it. And that's the power that we now have the power to perpetuate. Another person writes, okay, if scientists invent a way to regenerate and reanimate human tissue, would someone go to the oil and use these techniques to bring back the Rebbe, or are we supposed to wait for God himself to do tchis in a miraculous manner? Well, even if it was discovered, and it could be discovered, I mean, there are different, uh, I remember reading once a book called The Science of Resurrection. In other words, it's not something like the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, when asked, how is it possible to resurrect the dead? And the Gemara answer is very simple. If my delay have a have, maybe I said in the wrong song. If something that didn't exist, God brought into existence, my dahava have, for sure God can bring into existence that which already existed. So God created the world, yesh ma'ayin, from literally from nothing. So something that lived and was already created, so that's a matter of recre- recreating or re- resurrecting is definitely. And you see today, even though it's not yet been accomplished, the idea that DNA doesn't die, and there's the concept of regenerating or reviving. Now, the question of applying that, I don't think anyone would have the chutzpah to go to the oil and try to apply that. I can't speak for anyone. It just doesn't sound right to me. And more importantly, when it comes to Tchis HaMesim, we do see the Ebrishtas Machai HaMesim. So as much as science may be able to achieve it, I, I would think that um, probably we would want God to be involved. Even though you could say God works through scientists, that's true. Uh, but I think there has to be some type of revelation from above. That's how we see Tchis HaMesim. So it's an interesting discussion, regardless, because science can definitely, I have no doubt that science will come to be able to, to, to regenerate life in that sense. How that's going to apply actually to those that have passed on, it's hard to say right now. But in the belief of Tchis HaMesim, it just makes it easier that Hashem can do it in a way which will also have natural, um, natural participation, so to speak. And maybe once Hashem initiates it, that itself becomes part of science and part of how the process works. Who knows? These are some of the things that we're not familiar with until it happens, as the Rambam writes. But interesting uh, thought. And finally, even though there's no finally, but as, as the last question now, can you give a short synopsis and explain the significance of the Tetzava Maimer, which was the last Maimer the Rebbe edited and distributed? Thank you. So that year, Tovshin Nun Beis, when the Rebbe had the stroke 30 years ago, um, a Purim Cotton, there uh, was a Purim Cotton because it was an Ibu year like this year, actually, a leap year. So the Rebbe then, in the different times of the year, several times a year, would edit the Maimorim, this was a custom going back several years, edit my modem from previous years. And that year, the Rebbe edited in Tav Shinun Beis, the Maimar of Ata Tetzava, that was said, Parsha Tetzava, Tav Shin Mem Aleph, in 1981. And not only did he edit it, but he distributed it. And this would be the last Maimar. Remember, Purim Cotton, we're talking as Yudal, Tazvov, other, and just um, uh, 12 days later was the stroke. So this be the last edited mimer and, and distributed mimer. So Chassidim see in it some significance in that sense, that it has a sense of message to us all. The truth is the Rebbe continued to speak, so there are Fabrengans afterwards that the Rebbe edited, 
the last full Shabbos for bringing the Rebbe it was Kisiso Tovshin Nun Beis, which I had the merit to write, which also has many messages that once you read it now, you see in retrospect what the Rebbe was saying. And the final fabrengen before Chavzai Nodel Esata was Vayakel, Shabbos Pasha Vayakel, Tov Shunun Beis. And then the next Monday, there was that dark Monday when the Rebbe had the stroke. But getting back to the Mayim Vata Tetzava, it actually talks about a Rebbe, Moshe Rabbeinu, and the Moshe in each generation. So yes, a brief synopsis goes like this, Vata Tetzava, Vata referring to Moshe, but not Moshe by name, Vata you shall command, Vayikhuli, that the Jewish people should bring the olive oil, and from that make Shem and Zayis, pure olive oil, Kosis Lamoir, which you press, you crush, and it becomes something Lamoir for the Menorah to illuminate, but not just Oyer, Moir. And the Rebbe based his Mimer that in Tavshim Amalav, the one he edited in Tavshim and Beis, and a Mimer from Purim Kotten from the Friedrich Rebbe, famous Mimer, the Kibla Yehudim Tavresh Pezayin. And explain the Atta Tzitzavah goes on not just Moshe, the Etzim of Moshe, the Atta, the Atta of Moshe Rabbeinu. And Moshe is the Raya Ma'amna, he's the faithful shepherd that connects the Jewish people with godliness. Now, every person is obviously connected to Hashem directly, connected directly to God, is a piece of the divine. But Moshe reveals and sustains, like Raya Ma'amna, like a shepherd, he sustains and feeds and nourishes the connection. But that connection especially is nourished through Mesidus Nefesh. Through Mesidus Nefesh. And that's where there's the connection with Purim Kotten and with Mordechai, who was the Moshe in his generation, that they brought out the Mesidus Nefesh that, that by, in time of Purim, that allowed the Jews to confirm and ratify this what happened by Matan Teir. By Matan Teir, the revelation of Teir was from above. And it was still my daughter, Abel Araisa, the Jewish people could claim, as the Gemara explains in Shabbos, that they didn't really fully accept it on their own volition. Because Kofalim Karki Gigas, God, so to speak, imposed it on them. By Purim, however, Vikimu Vikibla Yehudim, they accepted it entirely because of the Mesidus Nefesh through the Gzedeth that happened then, the time of Mordechai, time of Achashvedish. And they withstood the challenges. And that connected them through Mesiris Nefesh. But then there's a deeper Mesiris Nefesh. The one that comes through the years after the, after the Nesa Purim, the years of the suffering, the difficulties that we go through in Golos. The Rebbe elaborates on the different types of challenges that we go through, both challenges when they're through difficult times and even challenges when things are in prosperous times. So even when things are going well, there's also a challenge to be able to feel that passion and that connection. So the Mesiris Nefesh of Golis, ultimately, the Rebbe explains, is that reveals the etzim of Eden, and that's why it says, Vayikhu, Vayikhu, It says what I mentioned before, Atan Tzavim, that the Jewish people should bring. Why them? Because they initiate something that even Moshe Rabbeinu, even though he gives them power to do so, and that's the Mesiris Nefesh that they have even in the most difficult times. So you can imagine Achsidim read into that, that the Rebbe was literally like describing a situation where you don't see the Moshe Rabbeinu in a revealed way. So now we have to dig deeper into ourselves. And this time it comes from what? Not, not from a force outside of us, but a force from within. Sidus Nefesh from within. And that reveals the deepest levels. Even in Moshe Va'atetetzava and even in the Elikus, to Atzmus Ein Sof Baruch That's a small 
taste of it. There's a lot more, of course, in the Maimer, but that would be the key significance, which, of course, supports what we've been discussing, the idea that we have now a challenge, and the challenge is meant to do something. It's not just meant to be, okay, this is an assoyan, a test. The challenge is meant to evoke deeper strengths, and we have both things. On one hand, yes, you can have a sadness, you can have difficulty, kosis lamoyed, like the Rebbe says, kosis lamoyed, that we're pressured, that there's a, there's a pressure. Kosis, pressured by the situations around us, but there's also the pressure that comes from prosperity and comforts. You can become apathetic, and that too needs to be fought. And all that are lessons for us today. So that Maima definitely it highlights a message that is extremely relevant uh, after Gimel Tammuz, especially after Chavzai Nader, but especially after Gimel Tammuz. Since this week is also Pasha Chukas, so let's talk about that uh, briefly. What do we learn from this chapter? And then we'll take one particular theme in the chapter and discuss it. So Chukas, Zeis Chukas Atera, in some years it's read together with Pasha Bullock. Here we read it separately, this week, separately, Chukas, in Ibriyar, very often it's a separate chapter. And the message is very clear, Zeis Chukas Atera, this is the edict, this is the Chukah, the super-rational law of Teda, and goes on to speak about Parah Duma. So firstly, Chassidus explains what's Chukah. We know there's a Mishpatim Eidus Chukim. Mishpatim are the rational laws. Do not steal. Love another. Eidus are the commemorative laws, like Shabbos, Yom Tif, that symbolize and signify and honor and commemorate something, which makes sense. But it's not purely just a rational, ethical law. And then there's chukim, which is the other extreme, super rational, paraduma. A red effort is going to purify the 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 the, uh, the, far, the far of the of the the dust the the ash that remains from burning the red heifer mixed with water is going to purify from the impurity of death. What's the logic? But that's a chukah. The Ebrister says, "Ozeis chukah satayr." And when Moshe was saw that that there was an impurity of death, he actually niskarkam upon of Shalmesha, became very disturbed. His face turned white, yellow, however the commentaries explain niskarkama. How will this be purified? And the Abraham says, Zeis chukzate, he points with his finger. Zeis, wherever it says Zeis, it means marabetz boyva Why did he have to point? Kavyochel point with the ring, because the question that Moshe Rabbeinu had, because it's so difficult to understand how one can purify, purify from death, as the Rebbe explained by the Shleshim of the Rebbe Tzintchai Mushke, because at the end of the day, with all the explanations, the emotional disconnect of body and soul is so disturbing, someone that takes it personally, that all the explanations are not enough. That's why Moshe was disturbed by, only by that impurity. And then the Ebrister says to him, But Chukka also has the meaning Chekike. Chukka Chakakti, Gzeri Gazarti. I have engraved this engraving and I have decreed this decree. So in other words, it's more than just when you write something, chikika means through and through, you're engraving it in the very essence of the object that, that you're engraving. Letters in stone, what's the connection? Because at the end of the day, mishpotim and edus, even though they also have an element of chukah, because everything comes from the divine, but they're bislapses, they come manifest in logic. Even commemorative mitzvahs have a common sense to it. 
we commemorate something that happened on that day. So though they are, have the element of being also a tzivri, a command of God's, but because they come in seichel and they, and they make sense and they can relate to our emotions, in a way, it's not fully engraved through and through. Because it still has a certain part of the human being's um, logic involved in it. When you say something is purely super-rational, it's only because God said so. It doesn't have any rationale besides that. That has the ability to go into the deepest engraving. Talked before about Mesiris Nefesh that comes from the Etzem. That touches the very Etzem. Now the truth is we need both. We need the Etzem Begili. The very core essence, that Mesiris Nefesh, that complete dedication, complete devotion reveals, has to also come into, the, into our imminent faculties, into our minds, into our hearts. We should understand and feel. So that's the power of Chukah. But it's interesting, it's connected to death. Death seems to be like the thing that's most irrational, most difficult to understand. If you're connected to God, it should always be an eternal source of life. How is it possible it should be death? As Moshe Rabbeinu said in different terms, how are you going to purify from that? Chetet Tzadas was an aberration. People were not, the human being was going to live forever. Chetet Tzadas caused a puncture in the physical body, in the physical world, that doesn't allow the eternal divine soul to manifest in the keli. The keli was somewhat injured, was wounded. So we need to repair it. That's why Tchis HaMesim makes total sense, because Tchis HaMesim is just bringing back the world to where it's supposed to be, where the Eris and Kalim, the soul and the body, are completely aligned seamlessly. But it's interesting that death, even though it's such a negative, but it can elicit, the living shall take to heart, a deeper connection and understanding what we're, what we're missing and what we're longing for. And all this, of course, is that the Rebbe's Yistalkos, Yud Gimel Tammuz, was when, Metzoi Shabbos Pasha Kairach, Kairach challenged what a Rebbe is. Do we need a Rebbe? And Metzoi Shabbos Pasha Kairach is the beginning of Yem Aleph of Pasha Chukas. The healing from the questions around death and around disconnect and around concealments and around all the tzimtzumim and concealments that come to connected, that are reminded by a day like Gimel Tammuz. So you have it all hinted to in the Parshas themselves. But Tzemach Sadiq writes that the Alter Rebbe passed away Metzoi Shabbos Parsha Shmois, all of the Parsha Ve'era. The Rebbe explains why do you need both? Because there's a connection to Shmois and a connection to Ve'era. And the same thing you can say, Metzoi Shabbos Parsha Kedach, and all of the Pasha Chukas, as I just explained. Okay. Another question around the Pasha is the actual story where we hear where Moshe Rabbeinu was told to draw water from the rock, he was told to speak to the rock, and instead, when he spoke, it didn't work, so he hit the rock. And for that, he was punished. So the big obvious question is, why was Moshe not supposed to hit the rock when the first time he was told to do, to do that? We learned earlier in the Torah that the first time this happens, he was told to hit the rock. So why now suddenly is it not allowed to hit the rock? And remember, at the end of the day, whether you speak or hit the rock, a rock doesn't give water. Either way, it's an act of faith. But the bottom line is, the Rebbe once explained that, I remember the Fabrengen very vividly. He said, from Moshe Rabbeinu, 
even to shift one word from, the, from Hashem, and the Jewish people are watching, that's a chil Hashem. For most of the people, if someone said, okay, you know what, I'm speaking to the rock, it's not working, I'll hit the rock, it's an act of faith. If someone said, Wait, one second, God, how could a rock give water? That's defying or challenging God. But he's only going over, and especially he was already told to hit the rock once. But for Moshe Rabbeinu, remember the Rebbe saying that when a mashpia, your teacher, wants something from the student, from the makabal, you have to, or the teacher himself has to do twice as much. Because the makabal, the recipient, the student, will always say, oh, if my teacher is doing that much, I can do half of that. In other words, the standard of someone on a higher level is far higher. For someone else, a shift of those words may not, of change of, that, of change of behavior in that level may not have been such a big thing. But for Moshe Rabbeinu, a person who is mamish, a person who is shechina medaberes metergrene, the shechina spoke through him. So that considered Achil Hashem, and that's why it was considered a grave sin. But bottom line is, why did God tell him the first time to hit the rock and the second time to speak? So on a simple educational level, it's because the true education is through kindness, through speaking gently. At times, you may need, when you start, for example, when you see somebody's beginning, let's say you train someone in an army. The beginning of training is always going to be very tough. Like you have to almost beat them into a certain discipline. I don't mean the word beat in a physical way. You put 300 pounds on the person's back and climb a wet mountain. Because you have to break someone in. The beginning of exercise is always going to be very difficult. It's like hitting the rock. Not, God forbid, physically hitting, but the symbolism of a much more gvuridik, a much more disciplined approach. But then, once you've gotten through, break through, let's say, bad habits, or train someone into good habits, now speak. And if you hit when you should be speaking, that's a big mistake. Speak, you have to speak with kindness, with gentleness, and that has an effect. And that's ultimately the way we affect that. Even a rock, even a hard rock, will produce water, as you see. If you try to talk to someone, you talk to them tough language, they'll say, I don't want to talk to you. I'm not interested. You speak kindly, gently. Even if you're saying things that are expecting more of that person, but it's coming from love, then even if someone's hard like a rock, they will produce their potential water, will come out from them. So that's a lesson from that. Okay. Let us move now to a timely issue, which happened over a week ago. And I've been asked quite a few questions. I'll just cover a few of the questions on this topic. Question is, what should be our reaction attitude to the reversal of Roe v. Wade? So, those of you that don't know what this is, Tove Lecha Brocha, remember by the Rebbe, by Fabrengens, sometimes he mentioned the New York Times. And he said, if you don't know what it is, it's Tove Lecha Brocha, may you be blessed. But some of us do know what's going on a bit in the world. And, and we need to know how to respond to it. So in 1972, 1973, there was a ruling by the Supreme Court of the United States that, gave, that there was a constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion. They found a way that they thought the Constitution gave that right. Even then, many people felt that was an incorrect a judicious, a judicial decision. But that stood for 49 years. This ruling was reversed last week by the Supreme Court. And of course, it created an outrage because those that are pro-abortion felt that this is now going to limit their ability to have abortions. 
with all the arguments, the political ones, the personal ones, the emotional ones, to the point the fray is so uh, confusing, it's very hard to even have a conversation about it because the emotions run so high. So the question is being asked, what should be our attitude? From a Torah Chassidus approach, what should be the attitude? Would the Rebbe speak about this? So let me respond to that. And I have here a few questions that came in as well, but I'll read those questions afterwards. Let's begin with the issue itself. So first of all, from a Torah Chassidus point of view, we don't need necessarily have to comment on political and even judicial decisions made by the Supreme Court or any court. We look at it, and if you want to look from the eyes of halacha, halacha has to ask the question, is an abortion allowed in the first place? The Supreme Court of the United States is not bound by halacha. Whatever binds them, is binds them. And we could see, can we align ourselves and see though that the secular legal system of our constitution is aligned to Torah thinking as much as possible. But remember, the Roe versus Wade reversal did not say that abortion is illegal. It just said that we're moving it back to the states. Every state should determine their standards. Let the people decide. Instead of the federal government just giving a constitutional right, a blanket constitutional right, we're removing that. So it doesn't even comment on abortion itself. Those that are pro-abortion obviously see that as now we don't have that protection of the federal mandate. So that's a discussion that can be had, but I don't know if there's a Teirich Siddhis response to that. You could say that the Teirich would not give someone a right to abort because abortion is not the right thing to do, except under certain circumstances. So it's not about anybody right saying everybody has a right to an abortion. Whether abortion is murder or not, we're not getting into that, but it would be like saying everyone has a right to mutilate themselves. Though according to Tate, you're not allowed to mutilate yourself, let alone if it's considered a murder. Kill yourself, suicide, or kill. So whether you determine that an uber, a fetus, is like a part of the mother, uber yerachime, which, which is also something you're not supposed to even cut your finger, let alone remove a part of yourself. Or that it's actually our life, which is another discussion which I'm not getting into now. So the Torah has, has of course, no such right. So the Roe versus Wade ruling was not consistent with the Torah approach to abortion. That doesn't mean there aren't situations where abortion is allowed, rare circumstances, but when the woman is in danger or her life is in danger. Again, this should all be addressed, and I should have mentioned this right at the outset. I'm not coming here to address halachic matters. So please don't read anything I'm saying as, as a basis of doing something or not doing something. For that, you need a competent rabbi, a halachic rabbi, who is both understands halacha, understands the science of it, have your doctor involved as well if this question comes up. Hopefully it doesn't ever have to come up such a question. And follow those guidelines. So I'm not discussing halacha here. I'm just discussing the halacha, the ashkafa part of it, the perspective on it. And from the perspective point, as I said, that's what the Torah is. So in that sense, should we celebrate the reversal of Roe versus Wade? No, it's not our job to celebrate. It's not our job to, to cry over it. You could just say, okay, the Torah talks about life. And so a woman becomes pregnant is considered a blessing. And life is considered a blessing. And we should not abort. You're not allowed to abort, except under certain circumstances.
But that, but remember, the Torah does not control this government or this constitution. So you have to keep and be always be aware of that. We're not coming here to say that the constitution has to follow the Torah law. We could say the Torah, just as it informed the founding fathers and this country with so many important and fundamental, beautiful principles from all men are created equal. Coming to July 4th this week as well. And other principles that are literally taken straight from the Torah. There's a book called On Two Wings that really makes a case of how the founding fathers based so many of their ideas on Torah metaphysics. That's the expression used. By secular scholars actually write this, Christian scholars. But the bottom line is, so then we also have to, as much as possible, try to teach the, the uh, political science, people who are studying political science, people who are going to become government officials or, or lawyers or judges, these principles, because it will heighten their standards. But the bottom line is, when a Supreme Court makes a decision, it's based on how they take it. And yes, if they understood this well, and the country understood it well, it would definitely inform them to heighten the standards. That should be our attitude. But the actual rulings... Remember, the ruling celebrating the reversal of Roe versus Wade, as I said, just changes who's going to determine. Some states will be very liberal, as we know, and some states will be more conservative. So the point being is that they have to move the constitutional right, which there you could say, from a Torah point of view, there's some merit in that, because no there shouldn't be such a right. Not God forbid in any way discriminating, and this is what I want to keep an emphasis as well. Our attitude also has to be one of sensitivity. This is not meant to say a woman who's dealing with, struggling with a question, she has a child that she considers unwanted, whether it came from an accident, whether it came from, uh, from, being, from being intimate in a place where she shouldn't have been intimate, not getting into it, whether it came from duress, and of course, there's situations where there's a real life threat, threat to the mother. So in all these cases, we have to be sensitive. We're not here pointing fingers and saying, no, you don't have such a right. We're here to educate and inspire. And that's the main point I want to make. All this of Roe versus Wade should be an opportunity to talk about it. What is life? What is a child? What is intimacy? What are our standards for intimacy? What is the sanctity of a relationship? The commitment. Should a relationship be one where people just can be together intimately, physically, with no consequences? And what do you do if a person is frivolous in that area? And yes, a, a child is conceived. This is a very important discussion that we all should have, all with kindness and sensitivity and gentleness, not through fighting, and definitely not striking the stone, but speaking to each other. So yes, on one hand, the Torah has a standard, and I'm describing it, but that standard is, is one that makes sense. It's about the sanctity of life, the sanctity of your own relationships, the sanctity of a child that you've conceived, father and mother, and how you treat it. Now, what about a situation where there's difficulties, financial, or the father doesn't want to relate to the child? You know, or like we know, we live in a world where there's a lot of freedom, and I mean freedom not in a positive way, where there's no real boundaries when it comes to sexuality. So again, this is the state of affairs that needs to be addressed and educated. Not here just to throw out fire and brimstone, look how terrible the world is. That's not the Tehidachsidus approach. We have to educate. The fact that there are lax standards by our teenagers and even children is a tragedy. 
So how do you deal with it? We have to educate. We have to inspire. We have to teach people from the ground up. So the approach is not about le- the legislation. Le- leave that for the government. Leave that for politics. Leave it for the judges. We have to educate and inspire. That's our approach. And hopefully that will also impact the standards of the people in this country and the, the lower courts and the higher courts and upper courts and so on. So it's far more complicated as a good or bad Roe v. v. Wade. Should we celebrate? Should we not? Because there's so much more going on. It doesn't change the country's attitude. It just actually creates more polarization. And always with sensitivity. I can't tell you how many women I have personally counseled and men who've had to struggle with this issue of a child they want to abort or a child that they did not want. Now, my attitude has always been, I'm not here to tell you what to do. You're coming to me for advice. I try to discuss it here, there, perspective. But I can tell you it's always with anguish. It's not like a simple decision. We're not just talking about whether I should get a haircut or not. So it's much more complicated than it sounds on the surface. And the way the media and the, the hype makes it into, it really desensitizes all on this topic in all directions. If anyone needs more about this topic, find someone you can trust and talk about in a sensitive manner. And that's the key thing I wanted to focus on. I think we should be discussing about life and how we look at life and how we look at relationships because it's ultimately us. How much you value yourself and how much you value your relationships. And yes, I try to teach people. The key thing is that when you're intimate with someone, it should be in a sacred way, in a marriage, in a real union. I have a chapter in Toward a Meaningful Life called Intimacy, the Sanctity of Sexuality. That is the critical headline that needs to be addressed from the youngest of age to infuse our children with that type of attitude that will preempt so many other issues. Because at the end of the day, abortion and contraception and birth control and everything else, I'm not putting it all into one pot, but I'm just saying anything that touches that area, these are all symptoms. These are all responses being reactive to something that happened. It's not taking a preemptive and a preventive approach of, our, of having a healthy perspective on the entire topic, which changes the whole attitude. I mean, there are women and men that are struggling to have children, which I'm going to read now a letter about that, which is so touching. Maybe that's a good segue. So when you hear that, and the context of people saying, you know, abortion, yeah, let's just be lax with it. I mean, there's, there's, there's real things at stake here of how we look at life and death and children and so on. Remember, if we look at, if we, if we become very, uh, very um, d- flippant about it and dismissive, what does that tell us about the value of children that are being born? Don't we want to see that as like a, the greatest gift on earth, the greatest blessing? And with that, let me go to some of the people who wrote about this. So we'll hear from the voice of the people, even though I'm also one of the people, but the voice of the listeners. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. And this is one person's opinion. This is not uh, representing my opinion or anyone else's. I'm just reading as one person wrote it just to get a taste. Today is a great day for people who support morality and decency as the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. I just want to qualify and say, as you saw, I did not call it that, and I don't believe, agree with that necessarily. I don't agree that it's a, a tragedy either. I just take it from a different perspective, looking at the bigger topics. But this person writes that. In truth, although some states still permit, will still permit abortions, 
This is still a momentous event because now our country on a federal level is no longer sanctioning and guaranteeing a right to have abortion. This is a severe blow to the Sitra Akhra, to the other side. Their side is arguing for the right to lead promiscuous lifestyles with no repercussions and for the right to kill their children for their own convenience. With the court's ruling, we, now, we have now become a more moral country. Again, I just want to comment because this may be very... I can imagine some people may stop listening to this program just from reading this line. This is the opinion of one individual. I'm not, I will not necessarily agree with it. I agree with some of the key points, but not so much that the Roe v. Wade is the determining factor. Is this a step toward a more moral country? We'll see. I, I, hope, I hope, yeah. But I don't see just that one ruling changes their standards. People's standards are within their own hearts and souls. These are my commentary on this person right. The radical left-wing extremists are so confused, they purport to be anti-racist and pro-abortion, but they have no idea that Margaret Sanger, who began the modern movement for birth control, which eventually evolved into Planned Parenthood, was a racist eugenicist who felt minorities were inferior, so she opened abortion clinics in minority neighborhoods all over the country. This is also a victory for couples who are having trouble having children and want to adopt children if they are unable to have their own, as it is possible that more women who don't want to have children will not have abortions, but instead give up their babies for adoption. Since everything that happens in our physical world and courts is mirrored in the spiritual world and heavenly courts, do you think this positive shift toward a more moral world is the last hurdle we needed to overcome to make the world ready for Mashiach? and that now Mashiach can actually come at any moment. Is this a sign that Mashiach is about to come? Has the Rebbe ever made any public comments about the Roe versus Wade case, and why, according to the Torah, abortion is wrong, unless it's an extreme case where a licensed doctor says that carrying the pregnancy to term can harm the mother? As I spoke my introduction to this topic, I, I'm, I'm not in a position to say that this is a step toward Mashiach, because I don't read that much into it. Yes, it perhaps straightened out a certain judicial mistake that some say happened, and I heard this from very liberal lawyers, that the courts were really responding to public opinion and not so much finding a constitutional right. They forced it into the 14th Amendment. But that, to me, is not necessarily a correction, a step toward Mashiach. It may be a step toward a better constitution, a better the better laws in the, the rule by the Supreme Court that, wrote, that governed this country. Because as I said, those that want an abortion are still going to go find that abortion. To me, it comes down to if we turn this into a revolution, a sexual revolution on a positive note, teaching people about the sanctity of it, teaching people what a relationship is, and you saw that more people are beginning to get married in a sacred way and having children in that spirit, and embracing those children, that to me for sure would be a sign. Now, the Supreme Court has a ruling. For some, it just incites them. For others, yes, like you write, are celebrating. But I, I can't say that it's a step in that sense of the word. Um, just not my, I don't, think, I don't feel that way. Whether the Rebbe spoke about it, I don't think the Rebbe spoke directly about this ruling. I'm sure he spoke about Hapola, about abortion in general, based on what I discussed earlier, because... It's reflective of, in general, how we look at children and life and, and marriage and relationships and so on. So we have now, again, accountability to rise to the occasion and use this to educate, to teach, to inspire ourselves and others. 
Dear Rabbi Jacobson, it's a shame that so many people are fighting for the rights to do abortions while there are couples who would love to have children but for medical reasons are having difficulties. May Hashem bless us that there should be an increase in the amount of fertility and healthy children born in our community. What should we say to a person considering doing an abortion in order to influence them to hopefully not do an abortion? It's a hard question to answer on, on a, in a public forum like this because it's case by case. As I mentioned before, I have spoken to many people in this situation without the goal of trying to change their mind or not, but trying to inform and educate and also to bring the issues to the table, to the fore, that make, to make sure that you're making the decision out of strength, not out of weakness, and understand that you'll have to live with it. I know people also, it's not popular to say, that have had abortions, and later regret it. They said that it haunts them. Because again, it's not like cutting your nails. It's a serious thing, carrying a child. So people need to understand that as well. It's not emphasized for many political reasons that this is a difficult decision no matter what. So how you deal with it, if someone is in that place and you, they have your trust and they're ready to speak to you, you be kind and sensitive. Let them speak. Let them share what happened, what they're thinking, why they feel it's difficult for them to have this child. Perhaps have the child, and yes, give the child to for adoption if you if that's difficult. If you sometimes they'll say, "I have no one with me in my life," and I feel very, very uncomfortable, very overwhelmed having a child. Maybe they need help. Maybe financial help. Maybe the father needs to show up. I mean, there's so many factors here. The most important is sensitivity. Sensitivity to the situation. The last thing is this woman needs someone to yell at her and say. How could you do that? And how could you think that way? Find out what's bothering her. That's what we're supposed to do. And very many times you could help a person. And when they make the decision, it may be very different what they first do because they thought they're hopeless. It's like in anything. People come to you and say, I'm ready to do something else. And they, why? Because I'm helpless or hopeless. I don't feel I have another option. Just like someone would come, I don't want to compare it, but someone would come who's more suicidal. Same thing, sensitivity. You've got to hear them out. You hear the person out and see where you can help. And if you're not comp- feel competent or able to help, maybe suggest someone to speak to. Someone else to speak to that will help this person. Because everybody can use support no matter what. Okay. Another final one more on this topic. Empire State of Abortion is the title of this person's writing. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for your weekly broadcast and for covering the Roe v. Wade issue. The vehemence with which the left in our country has been demonstrating for abortion on demand, quote-unquote, demonstrates how evil this is. The desire to destroy one's potential children in the name of convenience, belated birth control and free sex, sex without creating the problem of a potential child. How, how, a child. how sick is our society when children are thought of as a problem? New York and California now seem poised to become abortion mill states, which people from all over will come to destroy their potential future progeny. New York has codified into law the Equality Amendment, in which New York taxpayers fund abortions, including those from out-of-state residents, coming to destroy the human life within them, up to the point of birth and possibly beyond. I'm sure that within our lifetime, society will come to realize how truly negative abortion is, with the obvious exception of danger to life of the mother, in which, all, in which case all states permit abortion, it is a stain on our society equal to or even greater than slavery. I have a question. At what point do Jewish New Yorkers have a halachic imperative 
or at least a moral one, to move from New York in order not to support this evil? I'll leave that question to uh, everyone else. I can't answer that question. I don't know the, first of all, I don't know the circumstances. I don't know what the taxpayers' money is being used, not being used. These are decisions people have to make, where to live, and whether they can live with the standards of the state or the city or the, or the county in which they are uh, occupying and where, where they pay their taxes. But I don't have much more to say on the topic. I've already addressed it from different angles. I'm just really reading a selection of, I would say, at least 30, maybe 40 letters I've received on the topic. Okay. Let us now cover, I have some follow-up that I'd like to cover that I've been waiting for. So first of all, secular studies in the schools continues to be a topic that keeps coming up. I've talked about it in the last nine years. My life has applied many times. Um, but since there's a few more, let me read that. Why doesn't Chabad have a robust, secular a robust secular education program like the modern Orthodox? They have a strong secular and Jewish curriculum which allows their students to develop strong careers and to live like religious Jews. Why can't Chabad be the same? Also, wouldn't it help Shluchim if they had a strong background in science and they were well-spoken and knew how to write well? So it seems that secular education could even be useful to Chabad's mission of spreading Judaism. I believe this is something the Rebbe advocated, so I'm very curious about this point of view. I received many half-hearted answers before, but they all seemed apologetic and even defensive. I'm wondering if you could provide a more comprehensive explanation. Thank you. Okay. So I've covered this topic, and in many ways I'm going to be saying things that are redundant and repetitive, but it seems that it's an important topic and needs to be addressed, son. so you re we repeat or maybe some different angles or different nuances. I recall hearing from an individual who was in Yechidis by the Rebbe, personal audience. And he was a very good student in Yeshiva. He became a Rav, he became a Dayan. Yodin, Yodin, Yeda, Yeda, Yodin, Yodin. And he was a, a true academic. He was really curious in learning, to learn. And he asked the Rebbe about going to college. And it was not for the wrong reasons. It was for learning, for education, knowledge. And the Rebbe said to him the following. I'm giving you just a brief response. It was very fascinating. The Rebbe said to him, you know, in college, when someone goes to college, they often have a supervisor or a, or a counselor, an advisor. Advisor, I think, is the right word. That advises, like, what to major in, what to minor in, sometimes career. Like, for example, if somebody, there are many, many lawyers out there, so law may not be the right thing to go into. There's a glut of them. If there are very few accountants, accounting may be the way to go. In certain places, medicine, doctor, or other, uh, or other um, um, vocations or other professions. So you, you do it based on need. Now, the Rebbe said what's lacking most today is soul doctors. People who understand the neshama. People who can provide people with psychological, emotional, spiritual counseling. Teachers, educators, especially in the Jewish world, but even in the secular world. There are so few of them. So that should be the focus that one should be doing. If it was a balanced world and everybody had a very good balance between their spiritual life, their godly life, understand their mission in this world, and then they also have scientific knowledge, that's balanced. But when you have 99% or even more, no science and no medicine and no law. You have lawyers and accountants and doctors and computer, science, computer programmers, computer engineers galore, and you have so few people that can give direction and leadership 
on a spiritual level, that's where all the energy should go. So for every one of us, the Rebbe said, that can go into that field, the Rebbe was basically saying, didn't say the word shliach, or maybe he did use the word shliach, I don't remember now. So it was so valuable because there's so few. So for every million doctors, we have one soul doctor. That, that was not the number the Rebbe used, but, uh, but that was the example. That was the, the, the gist of it. And then the Rebbe concluded that the Baal Shem Tev and the Alta Rebbe and the Magid and the Alta Rebbe and the Mitla Rebbe and the Tzemach Tzedek and the Rebbe Marash and the Rebbe Nishmos Eden, the Rebbe Rashab, the Friedeker, the, the Shver, invited the Rebbe said, meaning referring to himself, why do they pour out all their energy, their blood, sweat, and tears, essentially? Is that you and I should put our lives, dedicate our lives toward the mission of bringing the message of Hashem, the message of God, and the shlichus that every person has in this world and living up to what God wants. Professions people have. They're making money. They have a tool. They have tools. But where to guide it and direct it toward the purpose of why the neshama came to this world that is your shlichus. I can tell you this person was deeply impressed and obviously decided not to go. This was not a negation of knowledge that you gain in college. It's where is the focus? When the Rebbe spoke about, the first time about secular education, he said this country, there's a new clip, there's a new clip, a new negative energy called tachlis. You need tachlis, you need to have a career, you need to make, to succeed, you need to go to college in order to have a career. To succeed, you need to know the purpose of your life. Careers are a means to an end. So no one's taking away from knowledge. Mathematics, physics, the physical sciences are necessary to understand Kiddush HaKedush. And other things, even in Teir. Let alone also, we're talking about understanding the, the ways of the world and make this world function. L'Shevis Yitzhara, to settle this world, there are... There are systems, there are structures, there are sciences that are necessary. The question is where to put your energy. That's the key here. So the fact that other, this is not about, okay, should we also have secular study? The question is what is the focus? And by the Rebbe, he wanted the focus of the young men and women to be toward becoming soul doctors. That would be the primary answer I would give to this. Because time is limited, I'm going to leave some other questions on this topic and other topics for another program. I'll just conclude with a chassidus question. Rabbi, in connection with these week's Tanya portions, if the tzimtzum is also part of Hashem's essential abilities, hein hein of God's gvura, to conceal, to withhold, to restrain, to refrain, why do we seem to only praise the, enli- the enlivening godly life force in Iraq and not its body that resulted from the tzimtzum? Aren't both aspects pure godliness? Okay, very good question. So first of all, we say, We do recognize God's gvura, which is the power of tzimtzum. So it's not exactly accurate what you're saying. We do. Bresh is bought elikim. Elikim is gvura and din, tzimtzum. But on a deeper level, I would say, that the very concept of praising something and expressing is itself giluim. So it seemed more fitting that a gilui is expressed through gilui, through praise. And a helim is expressed in other ways. We say, it could be expressed through awe, through reverence, Yiddish Hashem. 
So in addition to the first point I made, that very concept of focusing, you focus on the Dvar Hashem that gives life to something, that's the Elokus within it, the Oyer, not the Tzimtzum, because that's exactly what we're doing. We're focusing on something means a gili. But we also acknowledge, like we learn in Shari Yechudamuna, that Hein Heng Vureso, Shem Shemogen Hashem Alekim. There's a sun and there's its sheath, which is like Havaya and Alekim. Gilui and Simpson, as he explains in Tanya. So, of course, we talk about both of them and we recognize it. And in Simpson, sometimes we see even greater power than we do see in Gilui. But the power is a concealed one. So, sometimes it's expressed through concealment and not in revealed ways. So in a way, we're revealing that which is concealed, to put it in different terms. So fitting again, as we come from Gimel Tamas, our goal is to reveal that which is concealed, even the helm of the deepest helm Atzmi. I'm now teaching and learning that in Ayin Beis, in Chele Gimel, tremendous uh, section there where he talks about the, that in the deepest darkness in this world is revealed, is, you can, is rooted in the helm Atzmi, but it's in this concealed way. And that's why we can transform darkness from within darkness. If you want to join this program, I do a daily class in Ayin Bays on Zoom and on YouTube. Go to chassidahsupply.com and you can see the place where to join that class. Okay, with that, we conclude episode 408 of My Life Chassidah Supplied. Everyone should have a very blessed week. A week where we mahapach, the month of Tammuz, the negative things, to as the Rebbe calls this month, the month of Chedesh HaGeula, the Geula of Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tamas, and that we should ultimately see our Gimel Tamas, which was called a Schalte de Geula, because it was the time when the Friedrich Rebbe was released from the death penalty, and it was the beginning of the Geula that would ultimately conclude where he was totally freed on Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tamas. May we see that revealed, that Geula, and it should be immediately now. Everyone be well, and uh, we're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you so much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.